Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. It's Hugh Ballou, and uh, we're talking today about how to set up a nonprofit. And, you know, if you've already got a nonprofit set up, maybe there's some things that you overlooked uh, or maybe things you didn't know about that you'll need to know, know about today. So get a notepad because this is one that you're going to want to take notes. Um, I know that my guest today has uh, a wealth of information and he's got an enterprise to help help you get started. So Christian Lafer, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. Please tell people a little bit about yourself and then tell them why you're doing this great thing you're doing. Absolutely. Thanks, Hugh. Uh, great to be here again. And, you know, years ago when, when uh, I was young, uh, my younger sister was born about five years after me. I was, I was five when, when she came along. And uh, she was developmentally disabled, we found, as she got into her third and fourth year of life. And usually kids are talking up a storm at that point. And uh, there was no apparent uh, issues with her, but it turns out that uh, she had this uh, you know, developmental issue. And uh, so I got familiar as, at a very young age with different uh, nonprofits. I didn't know they were nonprofits then, but things like Special Olympics uh, that she's competed in her whole life, et cetera. And um, several years back, I, you know, fast forward many years, uh, I volunteered to start a 501c3 for, with some friends for a project, and I quickly became morally outraged at how uh, difficult it was and how long it would take to get the approval. So I set about uh, solving that for not only myself, but uh, many other people. And uh, we've done nearly 3,000 501c3s for organizations operating all over the world at this point uh, through instantnonprofit.com. Instantnonprofit.com. That's a that's a web web address we want to put into um, this podcast and let people know about that. Because you're right, it, um, people don't know where to go, they don't know what to do. Now, you have the steps to help people get started. I have through Centervision, we offer what we call a solution map. You know, where is it they want to be and how they create the infrastructure. So the people part of this, people know how how to use their skills, how to be engaged. And then the funders know why they need to fund you because they want to fund impact. They don't want to fund activity. And for us to look at that, that whole continuum of who do you need leaders? Who do you need board? Who do you need funders? Who do you need whatever? And then what will they do together? But the, the first thing is to be able to set it up and set it up right. So let me ask you, let's take a reverse look at this as we're starting up. By the way, if you have any way to turn up your mic, it's a little bit low. Um, and I know people want to hear every single word that you say, because uh, in the many conversations we've had, I'm constantly amazed at the, the depth of your knowledge and the completeness of your systems um, that make it really easier for people to do what they want to do. They get it done and then go and do the work. So let's say, what are the top three or four things that people do wrong when they set up a, a nonprofit? 
Uh, I would say top three things that people do wrong when they start their nonprofit. Um, we often come to you know, people come to us where they form the wrong kind of entity. Um, people say, "Well, I've started an LLC, and you know, I need you to help me get tax exempt status." And so we we prefer that people come to us with nothing because then we have chain of custody of all of the documentation and that we know things are done correctly. Uh, the entity formation piece is also, uh, even if you do create the nonprofit uh, corporation, which is the proper type of entity, uh, often people miss a step where they do not uh, add the purpose and dissolution clause language that maybe the state doesn't ask you for. They will give you the nonprofit corporation, no problem. Later on though, when you go to file with the IRS, if you don't have the proper language in those articles, you'll get uh, rejected and that'll cause a huge delay. You have to go back to the state and amend it, et cetera. So that would be number one would just be, they make mistakes in the formation of the entity. Uh, number two would be, there are many, I wrote a whole book uh, about, about this ebook. Uh, there are all kinds of mistakes that you can make in getting tax-exempt status. Um, when you apply to the IRS, there are certain things that you cannot do with your nonprofit and certain things that you have to have prepared. And if you miss any of, I believe it's about 26 isolated uh, steps in filing for the tax-exempt part of it. So you've gotten the entity going, you have the nonprofit corporation. But if you do not complete the tax exempt application correctly, you get rejected for that piece of it. And then I would say the third thing that people, the third mistake that people make when starting their nonprofit is overcomplicating things for themselves. Um, trying to put all of the pieces in place all at once, instead of taking the necessary steps and then moving on to the next piece of the process because it can be overwhelming. I think the biggest problem that people have is never getting started because of perfecting too much of the process to begin with and not knowing which are the critical pieces to start with and what you can, what, how, you, how to step it out properly. Yeah, I find that it, it's overwhelming often when um, we're doing something that's, that can be pretty large, not knowing where to start, not knowing what to do next. So it's, it's pretty complex. And what I know about you is you're able to give people a step-by-step -step process. So let's, let's start thinking about, um, there's, there's so, some prerequisites. I always encourage people when they say they're going to set up a nonprofit is to look at what's already available. And I know that half of the nonprofits set up each year close uh, because they might find themselves redundant or they're trying to do the work and there's, there's, they're in an oversaturated market. Um, or they just don't have, the, there's lots of reasons they close. But one of the things I don't think they do well is to look at the competition, see who's out there and see if what you want to do is already being provided for. Um, what is your sense of that? Well, I'm not, uh, I can't say I've run into that uh, a, a lot. And the reason is, well, it's kind of like it, it you know, people say, well, aren't there already too many nonprofits? And yes, many nonprofits do close. I don't know that that's because there is saturation. 
Um, I think what happens is just like many small businesses close, they don't have the system set up to maintain themselves in good standing, to bring the money in that they need, and they get burnt out as, as founders and as, non, as uh, small business owners often do as well. Um, and, and sometimes they get burnt out when they're three feet for, from gold. Um, they, they just don't have all of the things put together and they, uh, they take on too many different things. There's always a, a, somebody, a mentor that I had told me once, you know, there are about 50 things that you need to do to start any serious venture whether it's a nonprofit or a small business or a major project, you only need to do the top three at any given time. And if you try to do the top 10, you will fail. So it's about staying focused on the right things. But so many nonprofits are serving a unique need in a unique way that the founder sees as necessary. And they operate at a, at a local or county level in a neighborhood or with a very small niche of people that no one else is quite going to serve in the same way. So um, many nonprofits, it's just the traction that they lack and not necessarily that there's not a need or that they're redundant. So, so it really, so also, yes, why does the community need you? And what is it that you're going to do that's unique to solve the problem? We, we exist because we solve a problem, really. And we, we bring a solution to it, and it's a unique solution that we can offer. Um, so when people come to you um, to start up a nonprofit, what do you wish they had? Or, or do you have a way to, to get that information from people? Yeah, we guide them in that. Um, we step this process out so that even inside the 501c3 formation and tax exempt status process, they don't need to think about too many things at once. So we've created a very simple three-step process where in step one, you know, they sign up on our site, uh, choose the right package because there are a couple of different paths to 501c3. And um, they immediately get a welcome email with a link and a very short form. All they have to do is fill out that form and have three things in there, which is the name of the organization, three board members, and a very basic mission statement. We actually give them a formula for the mission statement, too. It's not the mission statement they want to put up on Times Square and lights. It's the mission statement that's going to get them through the government approval process. And so by just giving them those three very simple things to start out, they don't need to worry about all of the detail that will come after or the long list of documents that we'll provide, et cetera. We're going to provide everything they need, every document, every policy, but all they have to do is worry about the next couple of steps. And so those three ingredients are what we ask them to, to bring to the table when they sign up with us. When they start. Give, us, um, give us a sense for what kind of documents you're talking about in order to be able to, I, I know there's bylaws and there's articles and uh, conflict of interest. So what are, the, what are the necessary documents that one will have to have to be successful in, in launching? Absolutely. Um, the typical ones that are, are brought up are conflict of interest policy, compensation policy, uh, bylaws, um, and then, of course, there are elements of the application itself. Uh, but so, so those three that I just mentioned, the conflict of interest, compensation, 
policy and bylaws are three core essential documents the IRS is going to want you to have, right? They're required. <clears throat> there are another set of documents that I won't get into in detail here. We provide a corporate governance package as well. And that provides things like fill in the blanks, <clears throat> editable uh, minutes for your organizational meetings, your board meetings, um, board resolutions. Uh, you want to have a template for that. And we provide all of that mostly pre-written, especially for that first board meeting where you need to authorize. And then things like the board recruitment form. Uh, so that when you ask someone to join your board and they say, yes, uh, what do you, what does that entail? Most people stutter after the yes, not before. And so uh, being able to answer that in one page document about what you're asking the board member to do uh, is something that our customers really have an advantage with. So those are the typical types of documents that are concern and that we be solved. I'm gonna let my colleague Russell weigh in on some of this. We're just beginning to, to scratch the surface of what it takes and why we need these documents. So, hello, Russell. Greetings, greetings. I, I, uh, I was late returning from a meeting, a very good one. Uh, it's good to see you again, Christian. It's been quite a while. And uh, uh, starting an organization uh, and getting it started the right way is really critical. And so there are so many different steps that can really trip a person up. But having a system where you can just focus on one piece at a time, then the next thing, then the next thing, and making sure you can cross all your T's and dot all your I's is very important. So, uh, and there are so many things uh, that people can typically overlook. And, and uh, how frequent uh, would you say it occurs, Christian, that when people are using a, a pen and ink system or, or not doing an automated uh, type of system? How, how frequent, uh, frequently do people tend to miss some steps? And, and what does that do to the timing of the application with IRS? It's hard to say with any reliability, you know, how, many how, many, how frequently people miss steps. Uh, but really what we're talking about is how do we reduce the obscenely long time that even a properly completed 501c3 application takes, right? So the IRS, if, you, if, if the budget is above $50,000 per year projected in the first three years, and we have people that fall on both sides of that line, uh, it gets immensely more complicated. And so I think part of the reason that the IRS's average approval time is 12 to 14 months is because outside of absolute mistakes and, and just errors, omissions, you know, major problems like that, it's very difficult to format the information that is needed and is requested by the IRS or even to know what they're requesting. So it's as much to me a mistake of putting not enough information or too much information so that it's not a mistake, but it's a deficit from what would be considered an ideal file. That's going, that is why the IRS's average takes so long. The IRS has made their own problem. They've made the whole process so complicated that people don't know what to give them and end up either get, 
mailing them an encyclopedia or omitting other things that are actually needed, causing a back and forth with the IRS agent. And it's kind of like the mortgage that just never closes because the underwriter just wants that one more document and then one more and one more. So we've created a process by whereby we create something we call the love letter to a bureaucrat. It is the ideal perfect file that has not too much information, not too little, kind of like the Goldilocks file, and also very systematically presents that information uh, like you would see in a, in a well-organized book, table of contents, separator cheat sheets that are like chapters. And so when that person opens that file at the IRS, they know exactly what they're going to get and exactly where to find it. And they can check out, uh, they can check all the boxes and punch out to lunch early, which is what every desk worker wants. You know, what you have, it's almost like an automated audit technique guide. Now, the IRS publishes uh, audit technique guides, and most people don't know this, but uh, what that does is it, it outlines the, the typical procedures for an entity of a specific type that a revenue agent would actually take in uh, doing an examination. So it's kind of step by step. And when you know how to put information together in a way that the, the service looks at it, you can get that auditor out of your office the same way. But you've created something that's automated that uh, is not for an audit, but for application purposes. Just when you make it easy for them to do their jobs, uh, things are so much faster, so much smoother. And you've done tons of these. Uh, what's, what's been your typical turnaround rate uh, for an average uh, application on these? So I would say the average um, large format, what we call the enterprise, um, larger budget type organization, um, the, if the average is at the IRS is 12 to 14 months, we tell people three to six months. Um, and, and so we're, our, our target is always to cut down that delay time by about two thirds. Of course, this is the IRS. We're not in <laughs> That is our average. And so uh, people are really thrilled. Matter of fact, the IRS, they recently put a policy in place. You're not allowed to call to request any information on your pending file within 180 days. They, they will refuse the call and it, they send you a letter now that says that. Don't bother us. Mm -hmm. for well, the good news is we're getting word back that the file is approved prior to that in, in most cases. So uh, it's better to have the, the only news you get the good news on, on that front. But uh, we're saving an average of, you know, nine to seven to nine months in that case. For the smaller budget organizations, which are the majority of charities filed in the US and the majority that we do, um, end to end, seven to eight weeks, you'll have an approval in your hands. And right now, people who are about to sign up, we're encouraging them to stop thinking about it and start taking action and, and go ahead and sign up with us because we wanna get that file in prior to the holidays. Mm -hmm. uh, get in, incorporated at the state level before Thanksgiving, and we want to get the IRS application in well before Christmas so that um, they can have that uh, fourth quarter, they, they can take advantage of that fourth quarter fundraising opportunity that we all know about. 
you know, most nonprofits raise more in the fourth quarter than they do the whole rest of the year. Yes, Given Tuesday is coming. I've got a couple of campaigns to work on. So, yeah. So, uh, as a as a, a a group, are you finding that you have larger entities or or smaller entities uh, approaching you? And I know that you you start, but you do a number of other different things besides actually filing those applications. So. Uh, are you finding organizations of all sizes uh, approaching you, or does it vary? Absolutely. It's, it, it runs the gamut. Um, we just got off the phone with someone in Europe who's very well connected to celebrities, and they're doing uh, a large uh, environmentally oriented nonprofit. Um, they'll, they'll crowdfund, and, and you know, they'll bring in some big donors and some, you know, few dollars times a million people uh, through social media so that their funding sources will be all over the place and they'll raise millions uh, certainly and then we have a nice woman that I spoke with in the state of Washington and she helps get animals rehomed who are either stray or have been abused etc and she needs this status so that she can continue to get donated veterinary care dog food etc by uh, you know the the Walmart or the various supermarkets in her area, and they don't want to give those services to her without her having 501c3 status. She okay. won't raise, you know, five thousand dollars in a year, but she gets significant um, uh, in-kind donations to help these animals. So it really all shapes and sizes. You know, you mentioned in-kind donations, and that's that's pretty important, and that's. That's actually uh, a revenue source, in-kind uh, donations, pro bono work. Uh, how many people that you speak with have considered that? Um, it really depends on the type of nonprofit. I think there's a lot of in-kind with, um, there's more with social services, right? So people who are feeding people, clothing people, et cetera, uh, where goods can, can, can be, come in handy. And then animal-related nonprofits. Um, Nonprofits that don't have those kind of focus where they're provisioning people or, or animals tend to deal with hard cash or online donations. So, so Christian, the, the average nonprofit, um, it varies, but somewhere around 70% is their the income that keeps them open from donors. And we teach there's eight, eight different streams. So how do, how do you prepare people for getting funded? And when can they start taking money in? They get to start taking money in as soon as they're incorporated. Um, so, because the IRS's official policy is to backdate the date of tax-exempt status back to the date of incorporation. When they get that letter from the IRS, at the top is going to have today's date. And then in the letter mentioned as the date of tax-exempt status, going to be the date of their incorporation as long as they incorporate within 27 months, which most people do, of, as long as they get tax-exempt status within 27 months of incorporation. So that's such an outlier, I usually don't even mention that. We provide a memo to our customer in place the IRS uh, in lieu of the IRS until they get that letter, explaining and quoting the IRS's actual policy of backdating. So that's why we immediately incorporate for our customers so that they can open a bank account immediately 
with the EIN and the articles, they can open a bank account right away and start collecting tax-deductible funds. And if anyone asks, how am I going to write this off if you don't have your IRS yet, they provide this memo. That's a good tool, having your toolkit, especially as they're trying to collect uh, donations. Yeah, uh, so important at the beginning. Yeah. So it kind of solves the problem of, of coming up with a fiscal agency arrangement, which can be, uh, it can be challenging if, if there's a misalignment. Uh, if you've got somebody that's aligned, it's fine. But uh, it's complicated. It can take some time. Uh, not knowing how long the application is going to take and having it take place quickly can also create some issues too. Uh, the customer from Europe today who is, you know, starting a fight, we, we do American, just to be clear, you know, U.S.-based 501. This person happened to be in Europe and um, is, is working with celebrities across L.A. and Hollywood and um, asked about fiscal sponsorship. But when he found out how much time uh, delay that we eliminate on the IRS approval side, he realized that it's probably not going to be necessary to get the, go to the trouble of getting a fiscal sponsor. And when you have money going through anyone, the United Way or any fiscal sponsor, they're usually going to take a, a percentage, you know, five to 10% right off the top. It's also going to delay you getting those funds. And like you said, if there's a misalignment in purpose or, you know, just asking the donor to write a check to somebody else's organization can cause a misalignment of, of trust. And so it's best to say, this is what I'm doing. This is what I presented to you. And this is the organization. Write that check. Yeah, we can behave better and be more efficient if we're in a, a culture where everybody trusts everybody. That's very true. <laughs> Uh, there's, there's also the, the opportunity to introduce confusion into an already confusing process when you're talking about regulatory compliance. And, and uh, there's enough to do with bringing people on board and getting everything aligned. The technical aspects can be very daunting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you want to have as frictionless a, uh, a process as possible, especially um, when, when donors are involved. They want to feel... They want it to be no brain damage and no trouble to write that check, and you want that too. So, Christian, um, say if I, I want to start a nonprofit, which I don't, I already have one, but say I came out of the audience where you were speaking and said, Oh, I need you to help me start a nonprofit. What are the things that people have to pull together? I know they really need to have the three board members, you're at least three, to start this thing. And they, there's not, no too early to start getting people's commitments. Absolutely. So the way we do it is most of the people who come to us do have those three board members. But if they do not, since most states take some time, two to three days to even two to three weeks, depending on what state you're dealing with, um, there is some leeway where they can start as a single incorporator with us. Uh, most states, except Nevada, uh, and I don't know if there's another one, uh, only need a single incorporator to start. So what we do is we go ahead and incorporate in that state with that individual. And then we uh, allow them that, that intervening time to go out and get the other two board members. Um, but they need the board members. They need a basic mission statement. As I said, we provide the formula, especially for the smaller organizations, a very simple formula to come up with your mission statement. 
And um, it's basically, uh, we provide or, or we do X, right? We provide X, some, some fill in the blank, a product or service that helps people to a specific group. So you fill in that blank um, so that they can get and then fill in the blank for the outcome. So for example, our mission uh, with this company, and we are a for-profit, but we, we certainly help a lot of nonprofits, and we have a nonprofit alongside of this company. We help would-be nonprofit founders, right? People who desire to start a nonprofit by providing a seamless end-to-end done-for-you service so that they can get their nonprofit off the ground while staying focused on their mission. So that's where I use that three-step mission formula. That's really hard for entrepreneurs to chase the shiny object syndrome, isn't it? uh, They want to write something very big and elaborate, and they're welcome to do that, but we really help them dial it back to 140 characters or close to it. So they need three board members. They need a mission statement. And um, if they're a larger organization, there's a second set of steps where we get granular about the activities and how they're going to conduct the activities, where they're going to do it, how they're going to fund it, et cetera. Smaller organizations don't really need to um, get into as much detail and provide a budget. Larger organizations do. But we have a systematic formula and and a formula-driven spreadsheet, for example, that takes what the IRS uh, doesn't really communicate in English, and we translate it into English so that it's very simple, and then we put it into the format that the IRS wants for the customer. And that's how we get these great results. Yeah, building a budget is something that's very challenging, especially in the in the initial one. So as people go in and they build this budget, are these tools they can keep using to uh, handle their budgets? Yes. Um, so what we've done with, with our tool is we've provided what looks more like a normal budget for them to plug numbers into. And then we have an uneditable tab that spits and aggregates all of those numbers into a format that the IRS likes for the application. But what ends up happening is the customer walks away with a, uh, an asset for them because they have what they built as a budget when often they don't have that prepared yet. And it gets those juices flowing. How, how much money do we need to raise to make this mm-hmm. happen? And where will that money go? And if they need some guidelines, we have that for them as well um where uh how much you know do our employee benefits sometimes comes up um and and typically you don't want to spend more than certain amounts on uh fundraising activities for example because people start to wonder if you're going to do any good when you're spending too much (laughs) russell i heard him mention some ebooks a minute ago just kind of slipped that by you think we should explore that with him? He's got some how-to guides. What do you think? Oh, yeah. How-to guides are great. Uh, you know, it's simple tools that, that explain how to do things. And uh, it just takes some of the sting out of it and gives people manageable steps. Because if, it, if, if something's not easy to access, understand, or use, people are just going to it's going gonna, it's gonna to collect dust. So tell me a little bit about some of these guides that you've written. Uh, are they, these are new, yes? Yes. Yeah, so we have um, a new resources page. So if you go to instantnonprofit.com slash 
uh, nonprofit-resources. Um, and actually, let me make sure that that's the right uh, link. But if you just go to instantnonprofit.com and click resources at the top of that page, we have 20 downloadable resources that people can um, pull onto their own computer, edit for their own use, et cetera, uh, for such things as how to run a board meeting in 30 minutes or less, uh, or how to, uh, what's a conflict of interest policy look like, and many other uh, downloads that they can get the various resources. We also have um, on our blog, uh, if you if you go to the website and, and go to the blog, we have a 25,000 word set of posts that correspond and, and match that, uh, you know, augment that resource page where we've written about 25 posts, all of the different steps somebody would start a nonprofit. Now, of course, often people, uh, and, and you can get that in a PDF as well, as you mentioned, an ebook. And that's a 72 page ebook that's available on our site. Um, if you go to that blog post, um, which uh, is, is right at, uh, it's pinned at the top of our blog. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, uh, I don't think you could find this, this exact mix of all these documents of how-tos in any one place. That's what I remember last time we talked, Christian, is um, you've, got, you've thought through all of the component parts that people don't even know and they get part of it done, then they don't know where to go for the rest of it. So right. sounds like you've got hundreds of documents and this is a whole lot of work. Tell, set me straight here. Absolutely. I mean, that's why, you know, we have a fairly open-handed manner of providing people information at the level that they want. It. If someone wants to try to figure this out on their own or they're missing, a, you know, a conflict of interest policy or something, go ahead and download that. But what people often find is after going through uh, 72 pages of, of posts on all the different elements of starting a nonprofit, where they realize that assembling all of these different individual resources is a major job in itself, and that they would probably be better off spending that time uh, with a life skill, right? Because you're only going to form a nonprofit once in your life, maybe a couple of times. So why become an expert in that when you could become... You could invest that same time and pain and learning curve into something like fundraising or studying huge course on bringing eight streams of revenue into your nonprofit. That's a life skill that will pay off forever. So what we present to people is the option of having us do the 501c3 formation for you, putting all these resources together for you, and you're able to go focus on the mission and delivering the, the food to the children or the literacy or raising your consciousness or uh, helping the environment, whatever it is, that's your unique gift. Filing papers is not your unique gift. That's why we exist. Yeah, it's a marvelous set of tools. There's a lot of things in there. And so, uh, yes, spending the time to create strategies, that's what we work with people to do, strategies fundraising, all of the things that are involved in delivering the service, keeping the organization uh, on track. And uh, you have tools to help people stay on track once they form, don't you? Absolutely. We have something called Hands-Free 501c3. Um, and what, that, what we do there is 
we file your annual 990N, provide your annual report, and your charitable solicitation uh, registration, which are three minimal re minimum requirements to keep the organization in good standing year over year as you go forward. Um, because that, that compliance is, is essential. You don't want to lose your tax-exempt status, um, as over 200,000 organizations did in around 2011. Um, and consistently, organizations lose their status every single year by the tens of thousands because they fail to maintain those documents. So why worry about that going on when you're trying to sit down with a donor who's probably asking you how your corporate you know, governance is and, and your compliance is going? when you can just have a turnkey solution. So we do provide that as well. And then if people need to register nationwide, they're raising money in all states, we can help with that as well. Um, because if, if you're raising money in every state in the country or any number of them, that's a good problem to have. But you do need to be compliant in 40 out of 50 of those states. So fundraising registration, as, as you mentioned, this is something that needs to be done right up front, yes? It depends. It depends on the nature of the, um, you know, the, nature of the fundraising and the, uh, the amount that you're raising and the way that you're raising it. Um, some organizations couldn't afford to, to do that at the outset. And so rather than folding and just not starting anything because, well, we can't afford to do everything all at once. We help them step their way into that based on where they're getting traction and where they're raising money. And every state's got a different uh, procedure. Some states say, if you raise money in our state, file within 90 days. Other states say, don't even have a donate button uh, or, 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 you know, like New York. Every organization has a donate button. Most of them are not registered in New York. And most of them are your local cat rescue in your neighborhood is not going to go register with the state of New York no matter what you do and what kind of laws there are. It's simply cost prohibitive for many of these organizations that are very, very small. And their exposure is so low that um, it's something to be considered, in our opinion, mensurate even though it's required and I wouldn't advise that somebody not do it if they believe that they are, are required to however it's simply not practical for the very small organizations so we help them step into that so it's the process of growth and, and keeping all of the the uh, most important things uh, front and center as far as compliance goes. And, and you did mention a number of entities actually lost their status. And, and uh, so one has to be careful. And one of the revenue streams that we talk about is, is mission-based uh, mission, uh, revenue, where they're actually providing, providing services for people doing what they do at a commercial rate. Uh, um, how many, how many uh, organizations have you seen that kind of got tangled up uh, differentiating mission-based revenue from uh, unrelated revenue and have, have they actually lost their status as a result? I haven't, haven't really seen uh, any organizations lose their status, but what happens typically is they'll get, they'll get letters about that. If you're, so, so Russell mentioned uh, something ca called unrelated revenue versus related revenue. 
Unrelated revenue is something that's absolutely not related to your mission. Uh, for example, if a church has a coffee shop, which many, most big churches do, where they sell coffee versus just giving it for free, or a bookstore, that is unrelated revenue. That is essentially a profit-producing uh, arm or, or effort inside their entity. Um, and that is unrelated revenue. If you're unrelated revenue, becomes too big for 501c3's activities for revenue generation, you'll end up paying a tax on it. They won't necessarily revoke your status, but you'll have to pay tax on unrelated revenue. Related revenue is if that same church is selling books, but not through the bookstore, they are selling books for a marriage course. And people are paying money to take that marriage course. And you, you pay $44 that covers about $20 worth of book fees and $25 to sit in the room and air condition it and do all the other things. Those are examples of related revenue, which are in line with the mission. And they're not swag or t-shirts or something completely unrelated. Um, and that won't be taxed and generally is not a problem. Many, many organizations, a huge percentage of organizations ex exist um, entirely for off of fee for service because they're out there, you know, uh, maybe they're helping um, felons to rehabilitate. And so there's a fee to join to go to those classes or something. Um, that, that might be their entire revenue stream is fees for classes, but they're at a cut rate. They're at for a specific type of community. And the purpose of the, that is, is, to better those people's lives. It's an exempt activity. It's a fee for service, so that is related revenue. So everything goes on a case-by-case -case basis. That is, it's something It's part of that mix that should at least be considered, I think, as part of the growth plan. Absolutely, and some organizations start um, little profit centers here and there that may not be completely related to build funds or to, to, uh, to do a capital campaign. Um, uh, something that comes to mind is I've seen uh, organizations that fix uh, car used cars up for single moms, hopefully single dads too. Uh, well, they might do some paid for repairs on the side where the mechanics donate their time. Customers paying 60 instead of $120 an hour for that mechanic work. And that's generating hard cash to go into the ministry or the, the organization. And uh, those are great kind of very business type hybrid organizations that are smart and they're doing whatever it takes to serve that community, which I think is wonderful. Oh, that brings Christian brothers to mind. You've probably seen some of those around here locally. They are uh, very conscientious. I met some of those guys. They, they do some similar work. So, so Christian, um, 
when somebody are you starting to see an increase or a decrease in the number of applications coming um, through it seems pretty steady right now i think it's at about sixty thousand per year there was a high of eighty four thousand, and i think it was 2013 mm -hmm. um 2014 maybe um but and and since then stabilized to about sixty thousand. i think there are, there are about one million organizations in the country at this point so should somebody already have their um, their board members chosen when they start this process? You uh, did, yeah. Ah, he was good. <laughs> he froze on the stair for a second. Yeah. Can you hear me? Uh, anyway, yeah. yeah now I, I can. Okay. Now we can. Do people have their their board members in mind when they start? Uh oh. Now oh, we can. We, we've lost you again. Uh, the um, uh, the last data book I looked at was like 2014 to 2015, and they they had the number of entities that were opening. Uh, I haven't seen the recent stat on the closure rate. Have you seen one? I haven't. Um, all I know is that the organ the number of organizations is building year over year. So um, it's probably like the small business cycle. Uh, you know, you have a certain number, 1.1 or 2 million opening every year, and maybe, you know, maybe half of them don't make it. Uh, I don't know what the stat is in nonprofits, but uh, there is a building, you know, growing number of organizations year over year. I think either one is substantial. Can you hear me? I changed mics. Oh, yes. Okay. It was a problem with my Yeti Monster. Um, so I find that it's consistently difficult for people to get those initial three board members. Do you have any tips for how they should ask for it and, and get, because that's what takes time is finding the people to put on the application. Absolutely. Well, first of all, again, they can go to instantnonprofit.com, click resources at the top of the page and get a board recruitment form so that it can be easier for them to propose to that person and be all ready when that person says, yeah, I would consider that, uh, what's involved? And they can just slide a one pager asking that person for their commitment. Um, you know, most people, I think, make this more complicated than it needs to be in board recruitment. You're recruiting, initially your, your founding board is going to be friends or family. They do not need to be an expert in any capacity that you need necessarily. They don't need to know how to do books or they just need to trust you and be able to ask you questions um, that will help uh, bolster and maybe find any blind spots in your overall high level activities. Your three jobs really are to show up for one board meeting per year at minimum for small organizations that don't have a ton going on, uh, to review the budget at a high level and then to review the activities at a high level. If they can do those three things, then they are a suitable board member. And your founding board will look very different than the board of a very evolved uh, organization that has grown in its capacity and scope over time. So instead of putting big roadblocks, I need to go get somebody important, or I need to go get somebody with money, or putting these additional burdens on yourself, go get two friends who trust you and believe in the mission, and go from there. Uh, from there, once you have an entity, it's much easier to ask people to get involved with something that's real than something that is a concept. People struggle with concepts. 
But if you say, I have a nonprofit, I'm incorporating it now. I signed up with instantnonprofit.com because I'm a smart person. And I need you to sit on the board. Here's what that is. That's the best way to go. You can always add more board members later. You need to have an odd number. What's that about odd number? You need an odd number of board members. You need a minimum of three. And the odd number is so that you don't have a voting deadlock. The IRS doesn't want to imagine because there are no shareholders to rescue a nonprofit. It's entirely governed by the board. I, um, that broke up on my computer, the, the whole thing about odd. Well, having an odd number of uh, people on the board so you don't end up with deadlock. And I, 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 philosophically, you want people to really be on the same page. But from a compliance standpoint, having an odd number of people makes that impossible. You certainly don't want to have a 4-3 or 5-4 type of thing going on uh, with something you're making a decision on doing. You, you'd love to have a lot more buy-in than that uh, to be effective. Uh, I think if you're in a position where you're having these kind of close votes, that's, that could be very problematic, especially over the long term. You know, I think that's an a, um, indication that you got the wrong board. We teach that we build consensus in so that if you got a deciding vote, that means you're making the deciding vote or one person is, is swaying either way. So, you know, there's a, there's a better way to approach that in building consensus in the decision making. And if we're that close on the vote, maybe we shouldn't vote on it because you've got people divided on an issue. And that's, um, we do have nonprofits that have conflict and we want to try to build in some synergy and decision making as we do that. Um, so we, we're at the end of our, our time together, and I want to um, make sure that we give people that, that link again, Christian, so they can go and check out all this really helpful stuff that, that you've created. Um, but and I'm going to give a sponsor message, but before um, I do that, um, I want, I want um, you to think about what is a tip that you'd like to leave people with um, when when they uh, finish this really helpful interview. Wow, this has been, um, you know, people struggle with this kind of information. And I think I wanted to have you on here today um, so people would that want a nonprofit could realize, no, it's not as hard as you're trying to make it. And so um, I want you to have the last word and give people a... Um, uh, a parting thought or a tip or, or a challenge, you know, what do you want to leave people with? But we're, this, this, this session is sponsored by Easy Card. And there you, if you're watching this uh, on video and you can see it on the website, nonprofitexchange.com, you can see the Easy Card stuff there. And if you text, um, this says share or save as Easy Card. If you text 64600 with your cell phone, send a text to a number 64600, and for the message, you put in the word, the letters L, D, and R, and then you'll get this easy card, and you've got Center Vision Leadership Foundation in your hand. You've got all the resources available, the Center Vision Community, the, the uh, Nonprofit Performance 360 Magazine, 
the nonprofit exchange. Uh, after today, you'll have the video with this interview in there. So this is a, the this is an option to a website. It's not an app, but it's a, a digital card. So if you'll go to uh, send a text to six four six zero zero, put in the word LDR, you'll get your own EZ card. An EZ card is a sponsor that allows us to do programming like this for free for people. And you know what? This is a really good fundraising tool and an engagement tool for your board and your volunteers. So before we um, end our hour, Christian, what thought do you want to leave with people? And then Russell will close out this really wonderful interview. Thank you. Thank you. And I am just texting LDR to 64600. And see what happens from there. That easy card looks wonderful. Um, what I would say is don't starting a nonprofit, get in the way of exploring at least, right? Starting a nonprofit. Things are on our on our heart, on our life. And often I speak with people who and we have people on our email list who have been there three, four, five years thinking about things while um, the problem doesn't go away, the, the feral cat problem or the you know the, the literacy or or maybe they're in a dangerous neighborhood. They're going to be the ones to make it safer. And um, I often hear regret in, in the voices of people who say, I should have called you three years ago, but I was busy and you know my car broke down or I had a, an issue of some kind. This is something that you can start on a very simple basis. You can move forward as you're able and you can learn by doing. I really suggest learning by doing. It's not terribly expensive at all with our system to start a 501c3 and what you can do is just get out there get your message out and you can have people rallying around something that exists rather than having an idea bouncing around in your head which is very hard to get people to gain people's support i have been shocked at my career of raising millions of dollars from very small lists of people uh, with a one-page memo initially uh, and an idea and the amount of outpouring of, of uh, belief and, and checks that, that came in for some of these ideas that I've had or some of the things that I've supported other people by fundraising for them uh, was amazing. You will never know until you try. So try to keep it simple and get some expert help. Don't try to do your own plumbing because you're going to end up with a basement full of stuff. And Russell, I think as you're closing out, you can invite them to join the community. That's where they'll learn. That's true, yes. So I'd like to thank you for coming by. It's good to see you again. There's a lot of wealth of information here. So the key is to get started. Go to instantnonprofit.com and get started because you can do this in a systematic way without having to think about every little step because the system is designed to take you step by step. Kristen and his team are there to, to help you through that. Uh, sending out thanks, a shout out to our friends at Easy Card to thank them for supporting this broadcast, the Nonprofit Exchange. We are here every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with geniuses like Christian and other phenomenal business leaders, people with other products and services to help you stay on top of your game to deliver the impact that you're delivering. Uh, if you can't be here at that time, there's nothing to worry about. 
You can subscribe to the Nonprofit Exchange on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can listen to these broadcasts on the go and build a library of just phenomenal information on running your nonprofit and getting better and growing your team. So thanks again, Christian, for coming here. Uh, I'd like to thank all of uh, you difference makers out there who are out on the, out here in the public making things better for others out there. Until next week, this is Russ and Hugh uh, signing off, and we look forward to seeing you on the next edition of the Nonprofit Exchange. <laughs>